it was not love at first sight. There was some head scratching and questioning about why OMT worked without satisfactory answers. It took dedicated reading and a mentor like Phil Greenman to demonstrate and explain why and how OMT works. Dr. Greenman lives on through Dr. DiStefano as she strives to teach the next generation of osteopathic physicians about OMT. For her, it's not about learning osteopathic modalities like muscle energy, counterstrain, balanced ligamentous tension. Rather, importance should be given to a detailed and comprehensive knowledge of human anatomy and have a profound understanding of the arthrokinematic reflex of joints and how this may inhibit muscles, all with the goal of improving a patient's function and thereby improving their quality of life. There was so much more we could have touched on, but we will have to save this for a future episode. As always, listen to what an auditioning fourth-year medical student thinks about OMT. Tim Bales, Midwestern University, MS5. To me, OMT is removing fascial, fluid, joint, and energetic restrictions in the body, as well as the traumas of the mind pattern in the body to promote optimal health. Thank you for listening to another episode of the Osteopathic Manipulative Medicine Podcast, where we share clinical experiences and pearls related to osteopathic medicine. Our guest today is board certified in family medicine and osteopathic neuromusculoskeletal medicine. She is the current chair and director of the Department of Osteopathic Manipulative Medicine at Michigan State University. She was the inaugural chair of the ONMM ACGME Residency Review Committee. She has chaired numerous conferences, including the AAO Introduction to Osteopathic Manipulative Medicine in June of 2022. The American Academy of Osteopathy National Convocation Chair in March 2009, and will be the upcoming chair for the Osteopathic National Convocation this year. She has over 15 publications some of them being the effects of osteopathic manipulative treatment on pain and disability in patients with chronic neck pain. She's also the author of Greenman's Principles of Manual Medicine. She has numerous abstracts and oral presentations at both the local, national, and international level. She has been awarded the American Academy of Osteopathy Northup Award in appreciation of service to the osteopathic medical profession as well as the Michigan Osteopathic Association and the Award for Outstanding Scientific Research. Thank you for being on the podcast this evening, Dr. Lisa DiStefano. Thank you. Thank you for having me, Dr. Green. Yeah, we're, we are honored. So those who listen to the podcast know that I, I'd like to start out just to get to know you a little bit so our audience can get to know you a little bit. So outside of your busy medical practice, what are some of your hobbies outside of, of medicine? I am a hunter. I like to um, hunt my, for my, my meat, my meals. <laughs> um, I'm a forager. I love to forage um, our 60 acres of Northern Michigan property for mushrooms and leeks and um, 
fiddleheads and all kinds of yummies. And I'm a big gardener. We like to garden. We like to um, harvest all of our food and can. We can all of our food. Um, I like to cook. I really enjoy cooking. Um, yeah. 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 Oftentimes in the clinic when we're, we ask, where's, where's Dr. Stefano?" We find out she's hunting in Texas. Yes. <laughs> we like to hunt in Texas. Yeah. <laughs> What, what about a, a documentary or movie recommendation? Do you have any for us? Oh, movie recommendation. Oh. Or documentary. That's a good one. And if you don't I, have any, that's fine. Yeah, I, I really enjoyed, um, you know, I, there's a lot of things I enjoy. I like chick flicks. Um, my husband and I really enjoy kind of chick flicks together. <laughs> like P.S. I Love You and, you know, stuff like that. Yeah. Um, I, I just watched The Marvelous Miss Maisel, that's, uh, which was, a, I want to say it was a uh, Hulu series or something like that. And that was, I enjoyed that because um, it was, it was, it was placed in the, in the, you know, in the boy, forties and fifties. Um, yeah. I'm not a big movie um, person. Like I've never watched Star Wars or um, any of those things. <laughs> any of those movies. Yeah. yeah. My friends all think I'm really weird because I don't understand it when they start talking Star Wars or, <laughs> you know, stuff like that. Sure. What about a a book, a book recommendation? And it doesn't necessarily have to be related to osteopathic medic medicine. It can be just a pleasure read, but whatever, whatever you want to share. I love the author, Michael Pollan. Um, he's written wonderful books about lots of different things, but um, like The Omnivore's Dilemma, which was a book about foraging and food. Um, he just recently, uh, wrote a book on, um, um, that includes the use of psychedelics in medicine. Um, yeah. I, I like all of his books. Um, I, I've read every one of them. Um, um, Interesting. and I highly would rec, rec, you know, recommend any of his books. They're all good. Yeah. Is he a fungologist? I think that's what you said he's not he's he's just he i want to say he would he was a right he's a writer he wrote for um vanity fair or the atlantic or one of the you know big uh, um magazines before he began to research um particular you know particular things and he just he just loves to research yeah. particular regarding um food um and medicine and um foraging and mushrooms and <laughs> yeah it sounds he's fascinating just, he's, he's witty he's really a um it's it's funny because he's a he's an urban kid you know he's he's raised in new york and 
and and uh, he he wrote a book I can't remember the title about right now but it was one of the first books I ever wrote, read of his where he just you know he and his wife moved and they had a little plot of land and he set, decided he wanted to grow a garden and he had no clue what he was doing so he set out to just journal his, his gardening events, and <laughs> his, uh, his antics and his arguments with the squirrels and the raccoons as they were devouring all his food. <laughs> uh, it's, it's a great book. It <laughs> sounds like... Still, I think it's like the gardener's something or other. <laughs> it sounds like you take his books into your 60 acres up there in northern Michigan and meander through the woods and <laughs> identify mushrooms and... <laughs> I, I I would I would and and other books too. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Well, Doctor DeStefano, I guess we can just dive into our conversation about your your interest in osteopathic medicine. How how did that originate, or where did that where did that come from? That desire, I guess, first to become a physician, and then secondly to become an osteopathic physician. I never wanted to become a physician um, until I learned about osteopathy. And then, and that was only because I failed becoming a chemical engineer. Um, mm -hmm. I had no clue that osteopathic physicians really existed. So my story starts when I was about 11 and I was raised we were my parents were born and raised in Detroit and I was born in Detroit um in uh, East Detroit and we eventually by the time when I was eight my parents moved us up to the upper peninsula of Michigan and the lakeshore was essentially my playground and one Easter weekend my brother I was climbing a tree and my brother was shooting his BB gun and somehow his BB collided with my body and the tree limb I was standing on broke and I fell out of my tree, out of the tree. I probably fell 15 feet, you know, nothing mm -hmm. crazy. Um, but I fractured like the transverse process of my spine um, and a collarbone and so um, they ported me off to the hospital and I spent a week up in Green Bay, Wisconsin, because that was the nearest real hospital um, to my hometown. And they put me in a body cast. I mean, literally from under my armpits to the top of my pubic bone kind of body cast. And I had a little cutout, like a porthole. I called it my porthole so that when I ate, my, ba my belly could expand um, and contract. So I spent oh, six weeks in this body cast for a silly little transverse process fracture. And after that, my mother was really worried that I would develop some kind of chronic back pain. And so she quickly started having me see a local chiropractor because we didn't have any, you know, that was all she knew up there and um, it was, his name was Dr. Benson and I liked Dr. Benson, he was a nice man. And he would, I'd see him, you know, maybe a couple times a month, it wasn't very frequent. And I'd ride my bike over to the chiropractor's office 
from my home and he would he would chastise me he would poke on the area you know of my rib cage and uh, I would yelp a little bit and he'd say you've been eating popcorn again your sphincter of Odie is very upset <laughs> <laughs> I would just say okay well I'll be better <laughs> you really need to you need to watch it you know you're not you know no popcorn the holes of the popcorn are really playing hell on your body so i mean it was just like this okay i guess you can tell that from my back so he was he was just an interesting guy you know and and he was and right was, like you were actually eating popcorn and I, oh yeah i love popcorn i mean <laughs> what child didn't you know and i was probably 15 16 i was into you know eating whatever junk food i can get a hold of back then so, um, so that went on and then I was a cheerleader in high school and I remember I used to have terrible back pain and I used to, so my mother would always have me do all these stretches. My mother was a real naturalist. She, uh, mm -hmm. she never really brought us to doctors. So, um, she would cure everything with, um, foods. And I remember I had terrible hay fever. And her, her cure for hay fever was to have me eat the local honey bee pollen mm -hmm. right out of the, right out of the, um, the, the comb, right? The honey comb. Yeah. She would make me suck all the honey out of it and then chew on the comb. And she thought that the pollen would, you know, would, would rack with my body in a way that would rid me of my, my allergies. Mm -hmm. So, um, there was a lot of that going on in the household. Yeah. And when I was um, in high school, I was, you know, I mean, I was a youper, so I didn't study that hard. Um, but we, I studied, I loved chemistry. I love chemistry. I love chemistry. I mean, organic chemistry, inorganic chemistry, you name it. I really loved it. It was a big puzzle for me. Mm -hmm. And um, so when I went to college, I, I went to a junior college up in Escanaba and um, I studied more chemistry and I decided that I was going to be a chemical engineer. So I applied to Michigan Tech up in Houghton Hancock area, the Upper Peninsula, and I got accepted and I was, uh, I had two associate's degrees from this junior college and I, I you know, I had to go. I mean, I had to go do something. So I, I rethought about it. My mother had gone to school at Michigan State University. So I thought, you know, I, I really want to be a chemical engineer, but I need to get out of the UP because there was no really no culture up there. I, re I, wanted to, I wanted to see more. I wanted to do more. I figured if I stayed up in the UP, I'd never leave the UP. I'd never be able to, you know, I'd never go anywhere. So I, I gave... Um, I, I applied to Michigan State University and I got into the Lyman Briggs School um, and I started my path towards chemical engineering and my first, this is just kind of a crazy story, my first, um, I, I mean, I, can, I couldn't do the math, I couldn't do um, the calculus. Um, I struggled with um, PCHEM um, although the chemistry made sense, the, the math just, it just never worked for me. Um, and I met a woman, I'll never forget, I met a woman in that class by the name of Ardith Burgess. And she was a 
very strange woman who was genius, absolutely brilliant. Um, she could she could pull apart proteins, put them back together, and just laugh about it. You know, she could do it in her sleep. <laughs> so she tutored me for a while, and never we never got anywhere. So I, as time went on, I realized that I was going to have to drop out of chemical engineering. So I decided to go into the College of Natural Science at Michigan State and just do more chemistry, biochemistry and physiology. And I was going to get a, my degree was going to be in physiology. So I had to rethink what I was going to do with that degree. You know, do I want to teach? Do I want to go into nutrition? I love nutrition. You know, I thought that would be a good place for me. And then somewhere along the way, somebody um, told me about osteopathic medicine. And it was basically, they said, you could, you know, you can, you're going to use your biochemistry and you can do more chemistry and you can take more physiology and it's a graduate program. And, you know, I thought, and then they talked about this osteopathic manipulative medicine. I thought, wow, this is just perfect for me. You know, I can, I can learn about the body and I can use my skill set and I can, you know, take more biochemistry, <laughs> which is really exciting to me. <laughs> I love biochemistry and I loved function. So really didn't even put two and two together that I was going to be a fully licensed physician. I just thought this was a great step. I could do more of what I wanted to do and then figure out what I was going to do with it afterwards. So I showed up at the Dean of Admissions office um, with my transcripts I made an appointment I walked in her name was Kay White um, and this was in 1987 and or 19 yeah 1987 86 something like that and uh, I said all right here's my transcripts what do your students look like what do I need to get in and she said well she said yeah you look like all our other students she said great points reasonable um, take another biology course and take the MCAT. So I did and I applied and I got in. I mean, it was just like, wow. So I started in 1988. And the story, the funny story about it is at my resident, I was a resident or I was just finishing. No, I was done with my residency and I was at Michigan State. And one of the new residents coming in was a woman by the name of Ardith Burgess. And I went, really? There's only one Ardith Burgess in this whole entire world you know who who else has a name like that and sure enough it was the same woman she ended up going to school in um I want to say Des Moines or one of the other deal schools and she was coming in to do a, a, a you know a second you know an OMM residency oh so. she she ended up doing OMM <laughs> yeah at Michigan oh, wow. State yeah oh, wow yeah she ended up doing OMM I don't think she graduated from her residency she was brilliant, but she really, you know, she couldn't function very well in life. I think she's somewhere still around East Lansing. Really? Um, very, very smart woman, but it was, it was just, it was funny. Hmm. So, so that's my path to osteopathic medicine. Now, do you remember who this person was that told you about osteopathic I medicine? Because it's. No, nope. I don't yeah, remember. Yeah. There's two people I don't, that, that pass cross my path. Um, one was when I was trying to decide if I wanted to go upstate or downstate to do my, finish my bachelor degree. 
And I was at that time I was tutoring um, all all these nursing students, and they were all mothers who um, their kids were now in school, and now they wanted to start a new career, so they were in nursing school and they were getting their RN or LPN degrees, and I was their chemistry tutor, and they were they were like my little cheerleaders because I was only, you know, if I was twenty twenty. I couldn't have been 21 because I came down Michigan State when I was 21 and lived in the undergraduate dorms, by the way. I had lots of friends. Um, <laughs> and so uh, I was 20 years old and, and uh, they were they were cheering me on to go to, you know, Michigan Tech. And they were like my little fan club. And I was really, you know, I was like, I don't want to disappoint anyone. You know, they've been so supportive of me going to Michigan Tech. And someone, I said that out loud in the hallway and some guy walked by me and he looked at me and says, don't let anybody tell you or intimidate you or, or make you feel like you're not good enough just because, you know, you, you committed to one thing or something like that. And, and I went, oh, you're right. You know, I, I, I'll do well. And they're just happy for me regardless of what path I take. And so that kind of stuck with me and I, it was one of the big decisions <laughs> it always fascinates me how there are certain people in our lives and oftentimes they don't know what their words can mean or how they can have such a profound influence on our lives or on our career choices um just like that person that introduced you to osteopathic medicine or told you about osteopathic medicine you know i guess you never know what would have happened if they, if you would not have met that person, but. Yeah, it was, it was so exciting. I mean, I was thrilled to the point where I quickly made an appointment with the admissions director of the college of osteopathic medicine. I researched it quickly. I really didn't have a conversation with my parents at all. Um, I didn't tell them what I was doing. Cause I was kind of like, Oh gosh, they're going to kill me because I've already been in undergraduate, you know, student for, what five and a half years and um, they already think I'm a professional student my siblings were already you know chiding you know chastising me about you know oh another you know aren't you done yet <laughs> <laughs> and are so, you the first doctor in your family yeah yeah I'm the first doctor in my family my grandfather on the Desenzo side my mother's father was a chemist. He loved chemistry. And uh, he had a doctor's bag. I think he really wanted to become a physician. Um, he worked for um, the, uh, I, I want to say it was like the rubber works and um, in the chemistry department. Um, mm -hmm. And for some reason, he did not continue as a chemist in his young years. Um, he ended up going into real estate or doing and doing something else, um, but he was very fascinated. He was about um, chemistry and biochemistry. He was the only scientist in my family. And so, when you told your parents, "Hey, I'm I think I'm going to go to osteopathic medical school," what was their reaction? Well, my mother. It was it was funny because I didn't know osteopathic physicians existed. Um, and I, so the first thing I, I told uh, my parents when I got accepted, um, my mother told me, yeah, you know, 
all of your doctors were DOs. In fact, Lisa, you were born in Detroit Osteopathic Hospital. Um, and I was. Um, all Dr. De Palma was my doctor, and it was all these, you know, it was a it was uh, Italian um, physicians whose family had immigrated to Detroit, like mine did, and they built, they helped build Detroit Osteopathic Hospital during the, um, you know, during the wars and when they, and then practiced there until they closed it, um, I want to say it closed in the 80s. And my father's response was, well, this is kind of funny because I had a classmate um, that was from Green Gladstone, which is a, you know, uh, local city, Tascanaba, where I grew up. And um, she, her and her sister um, were, um, her, um, this Debbie Iverson and, and um, Becky Iverson's father played golf with my dad. My dad was a big time golfer. And he, um, his friend, um, Mr. Iverson, was very proud to say that his daughter, um, Debbie and I both started in the class of 1988 together. And so when I told my dad, I said, and, 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 and Debbie's in my, in my class. And he laughed and he said, well, her sister just got accepted into the LPGA. <laughs> like, really dad? <laughs> he was so fascinated, but he loved golf so much. He kind of like, I just got accepted in medical school. <laughs> you just shot me down. That's hilarious. The LPGA. That so, is hilarious. Because when I told I... <laughs> when I told my mother that I got accepted into medical school, she said, literally, her next comment was, "Did you pay your credit card off yet?" <laughs> I was like, "Wait, I just told you I got accepted into medical school." Oh, that's funny. They are. They are. Um... They both are living today and they're very proud of me. They're, they're just, they're my That's great. cheerleaders. They're That's great. So you took the MCAT, you got accepted into osteopathic medical school at Michigan State. And then you're going through first year of medical school. What was it like to, when you actually got into OMM and you listened to the lectures and you started with the lab, the hands-on treatments? What was that experience like for you? Well, it was, it was, it was good. It was nice. Um, I loved it. Um, it was a distraction from the rest of my classwork, but medical school was, was hard. And it, there was so many other distractions um, that I really couldn't, you couldn't really fall in love with OMM. Um, and there wasn't the mentor. There wasn't really a mentor. You pretty much had to have a classmate that you could practice on, um, somebody, somebody that you trusted, somebody that you were close to, if you really were going to learn the material, um, I, I felt like I couldn't do it. I couldn't learn it on my own. I had to really work with someone else. So why? Um, because we only had one instructor for the oh. whole class. And that was, so in every quarter or every semester, we would take another technique. So I learned from, you know, Bob, Dr. Ward, Bob Ward, who still is alive today, would teach myofascial, and John Goodrich would teach um, counter strain. 
and soft tissue technique and Phil Greenman, we teach muscle energy and, um, you know, someone else, there was always someone else and Bill Johnston would um, teach us functional indirect technique. And it was their own thing. And you couldn't put these guys, there was just a whole host of wonderful actors in terms of OMM, um, physicians in terms of OMM at Michigan State, but none of them could stand in one room together. They, they weren't collaborative um, at all. So they weren't collaborative because they didn't get they just, along or they just had they different philosophies? They completely or? disagreed with a lot of things and they all um, were very passionate about their own technique. Um, and more so than others, more so than others, you know, and as I, as I spent more time, I realized the background behind all of that. And, but for me in medical school, it was like, okay, I'm going to spend this whole semester with, you know, one clinician. So, you know, there were six semesters of OMM, much like there is now. So I got to work with six different people. Um, but there wasn't, you really couldn't, you didn't have your own small group instructor. It wasn't a 10 to one ratio, you know, or 12 to one ratio. It was basically the whole classroom. And how so many students were in the classroom? I want to say there was 125 wow. students in the classroom. 125 to one. Oh, 125 boy. to one, yeah. <laughs> yeah. Wow. So you really didn't fall in love then with OMM during medical school? No. You... I, I always, um, what I, what I, what I wanted out of medical school um, was what I started, um, why I started medical school and at DO school is I wanted to learn more about normal function. You know, I figured disease would follow. I could figure out disease, but I really love physiology. I love physiology and I love structure function integration. Um, but there wasn't a connection for me between joint dysfunction or somatic dysfunction and structure function dysregulation. I didn't, I didn't, I didn't figure that out. That wasn't clear to me in medical school. Okay. So did that influence your decision when fourth year rolled around and it came time to choose residency, you chose family medicine. Yeah. Is that I why? I chose family medicine. That's why. Yep. I, I, I had contracts. So I had, um, I still remember she's a patient of mine now. She's an ER doc. Um, she was a resident then. And she said, Lisa, we'd love for you to come and join our emergency medicine residency. And I had a uh, surgical residents said, general surgery, we'd love to have you. It was back then, there wasn't the competition. Basically, wherever you did your clerkship, that was where you did your residency because um, those were your audition rotations. You had a whole year or two years of audition rotations. Um, back then, um, you didn't really go other places. Maybe you went to Sparrow. You know, You went to another hospital in the community, but for the most part, most of the people just did their residency right where they did their clerkship simply because those were the people that you got to know. So I turned all that down and, and 
the other big factor for me was that the the American Osteopathic Association's first residency program in osteopathic manipulative medicine started in 1992. And there were two of the interns ahead of me, um, one in my hospital and one in another hospital. I don't know where Brad Sandler came from. He might've been at Sparrow or he might've been in another city. Um, but Janine Talty was an upper, you know, she was ahead of me and she came from Des Moines and did her clerkship at MS at um, the hospital. I did mine, which is today's version of McLaren. It was the old Lansing general osteopathic hospital. And they, um, so, and Bob Ward had just got accredited to do, or he, the AOA just, um, started the residency program in MSU, or at that time it was Lansing General Hospital, um, was granted one of those residency um, locations. So they both started this neuromusculoskeletal medicine residency track um, in, in, I wanna say it was either purely OMM or I, I think it was just purely OMM. Um, no, it had to be. No, it was purely OMM. Was it purely? It, was purely OMM. it wasn't PMNR and no, OMM. No, no, no. Um, so when they started their residency, I would just hang out with them, um, and I would go to every one of the OMM didactics, and I just, you know, even during my third and fourth year, I would go to their. They were really kind of, they had these great didactics and um, OMT was also always a part of it. We'd always meet. And, and so, and then I got to know Bob Ward a little better. And I said, well, can I do a, a plus one, like an integrated? And he said, yeah, we'll do an integrated. So I was, I want to say I was the first integrated OMM, NMM resident, or I might even have been the second. I can't remember if Janine did a, a, a four year or not. So, so you were going to these didactics and that's when you started making the connection that, oh, mm -hmm. this is actually what I've been looking for. Yeah. This relation between structure and function. Yep. Yeah. Because is they it? would start talking about the greatest stuff in the world. They would start talking about um, sacral motion and gait cycle and muscle imbalance back then it was there everybody was really high on muscle imbalance and exercise prescription um and at the same time we were still you know michigan state was has this huge manual medicine series that so i took some of those courses um, with bob ward and phil greenman and ed styles and um, it was fabulous. I mean, you had all these like minds in the room where they were actually making sense of all of them for me. Um, and so then I started picking up some books um, and, and then I would take more or then they started asking me to teach as a resident. I was teaching in the manual medicine series. And so I had to study, you know, what about vertebral motion and, and what about 
you know, the position we put people in to do sacral iliac treatment using muscle energy and why is there this sequence? And um, so it, things became more and more functional to me. I started to make sense of why we would do OMT. What was important about the musculoskeletal system where OMT would have been indicated? And that was thrilling to me. And you're doing this all the while being a family medicine resident? Yes. During your residency? During so my almost, residency, which was a four-year combined residency. Four-year combined, three years of family medicine, one of OMM? Correct, but it was integrated through all four years. My OMM was integrated. It ended up being a plus one because that's the only way they could classify it under the AOA. Um, but I ended up, I had the opportunity to have an OMM um, outpatient clinic over at the, where the Penn camp, Pennsylvania campus of Michigan, you know, of, of the old Lansing General Hospital in the basement of that campus, um, as well as my family medicine residency clinic. So I would go back and forth between OMM and family medicine. And what was it about... OMM that really swept you off your feet and you realized this, this is what I want to dedicate my life and my career to. So what it was for me, and this is after years of, you know, trial and error and frustration with how I was taught OMT and how OMT was really explained to me. Um, it became clear to me that um, what this, this whole business was about was better appreciating um, the normal function of the musculoskeletal system. I finally put, my, put, a, put, a, a, put a box around it. Um, and and it re I realized that no one else is being taught the normal function of the musculoskeletal system, right? I mean, we think about pulmonology, you learn about pulmon, you know, the, the lungs and the heart-lung interaction and, you know, lymphatic drainage and a little bit about respiration and, you know, but you really don't learn about the musculoskeletal system relative to pulmonology, but there is some, right? And then cardiology, there is some, and even PM&R, you know, when you think of physical medicine rehab, they're not, they're really more, um, that discipline is about spine injury and brain injury and amputations and doing EMGs. And it's far more neurologically driven education than anything else. And, um, you know, all the disciplines and family medicine for me was kind of a combination of everything. I had to, I had to be, uh, knowledgeable about everything, but expert in none of it. But in OMM, I could be, I could really, really, really just focus on, on one system of the body. Um, and that system of the body is a musculoskeletal system. There's really the neuromusculoskeletal system. So a lot of reflex neurology. And so when I started to study it from that perspective, and then dysfunction became obvious to me and 
disorder became obvious to me and disease became obvious to me. I mean, I could start and, and look at, um, well, I understand why someone has a little back pain now, and this is how we're, we should probably look at it. Um, let's look at it from this perspective. And if we found what we thought we could find and the pattern we find, then we can help this person. If we didn't find these patterns or this particular stuff, then probably that's not a musculoskeletal system problem. It's pain due to maybe an organ system or a visceral somatic system or another disease process that is unrelated other than referral pain to the musculoskeletal system. So it, it became clearer and clearer to me the pathway that I felt I needed to take. I see. And so you, you were really privileged in the sense that you were taught OMT by some greats in our field, like Bob Ward, Phil Greenman, Ed Stiles. Did, Phil Johnson, yeah. Are there any stories that you want to share about, you know, these physicians or lessons <laughs> that they taught you? Oh, I'm sure gosh. you have, we could do a whole podcast episode on this and we probably should, but are there yeah, a few Bob, that you'd like to share? Bob Ward was my program director and, um, in OMM and Bob Ward was all myofascial. He coined the integrated neuromusculoskeletal release technique, but he couldn't teach it to anybody. So I, he would show you what he was doing and he would do it and we teach these complex classes um, on myofascial release using this integrated neuromusculoskeletal release technique. And so, but it was so complex the way that he taught it that no one could figure out what he was doing. And so I watched <laughs> this man, I mean, that's the only technique. So as a first year resident, I could not, first and second year resident, I could not, um, I could just um, work with him. He wouldn't let me work with anyone else. So now I had already, as a medical student, worked with um, John Upledger and, and learned as much as I could about cranial technique um, before I even graduated from medical school. So John Upledger got me a little interested in osteopathic neuropathic medicine, but he was such an anarchist that you really couldn't, you'd have to, he didn't even, you couldn't even really do a residency. He was just anti-establishment about everything. So I, I, I was a bit confused still. So I had to kind of get back on my, in my structure. So Bob Ward was just complicated. And um, so I learned everything I could about myofascial release. And whenever I'd say to him, well, Bob, what I think you were trying to do is this, you know, and, and he'd say, no, 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 no. That's not what I'm trying to do. And he would make us read Kendall and Schwartz the neurophysiology, neurology textbook. I mean, cover to cover in our residency didactics, we would have to read Kendall and Schwartz. And I would, and he would bring in PhDs like Rick Hallgren and um, there were other PhDs that he would bring in who had some neuroscience background and they would try to explain to us some of this neurophysiology and I would go right to sleep. I mean, I was, I, it would, you know, it would just bore me to death. Um, because I wanted the hands-on clinical experience and it was so frustrating um, because I really wanted to, I wanted Bob to explain to me the, the neurophysiology of what he was doing. I wanted him to under, help me understand 
the technique better, but he couldn't, the closer you got to understanding really what he was doing, which was very simplistic, he would run away from that because he didn't really want you to know what he was doing. Cause then you would know all of his secrets and he was that, he, that made him feel very vulnerable. So I love the guy to death, but he, he was very, very screwed up in his head about how he, what he, um, he had great hands. He could get people better, but it was, it was all about him. And so I learned a lot from, from Bob Ward because I didn't want this to be about him or be about me. That was one lesson I learned about him. Okay. And his treatment, like you said, Lisa was, you said integrated myofascial release. That's all he did. That's all he did. Myofascial release with this integrated neuroreflexive type of enhancing mm-hmm. maneuver, which he's the one that coined it. It's beautiful. It's brilliant, right? Speeds up myofascial release by a million times, right? Um, but he's but the he only one that knows how to do it. I, I do it, and I and I've written. I've you know, I've got all of his research in my, in my basement because he's expecting me to write his book for him. And I, and I, I've done, I've done him justice in the principles of animal medicine text. Um, Cause it's a very simple technique and um, you know, he's, he's still alive and I keep waiting for him to, you know, write his own text, but I, it's, it's, it's a very simple technique. It's just basically, you know, you load, and then you have the body, the, the patient load to match your load. And then you get the neuroreflexive release because it's, you're really changing the mu- muscular fascial, muscular tendinous junction. You're not really breaking collagen bonds or doing anything with the fascia. It's just that you can't separate fascia from muscle. So you're really changing muscle at the, um, at the muscular tendinous junction. So it's pretty fascinating technique but it that's all he almost... would let me do you know and I, and I would I had this table which was like a fixed table that was way too high in my clinic and that's the only table I could use right it wasn't a high low table it wasn't fancy and so literally I'd be doing my fascia release standing literally kneeling over the top of the patient <laughs> <So frustrating. laughs> but finally he let me work with Phil Greenman and now the story about Phil is, is just funny I'll, I'll make it short. Basically, the first week I worked with Phil Greenman in his clinic, and it was at the clinical center and, and on campus. And he was he was then working in in PM&R in physical medicine rehab with um, Jim Sylvain's group. And I, the first week, I just watched him, and I watched him, and I watched him. And he, I could every technique he did, I knew what he was doing. I could tell you what he was doing. He was doing muscle energy technique or he was doing cranial technique or he was doing high velocity technique and he was blending it all together. And, but it made sense, right? You're, you're doing all the techniques I was taught to do, but he was putting this wonderful clinical, clinical piece, you know, behind it. And he was really a, t- a technician. I mean, he, he would unstack things and he would, he would, you know, they, and it, and it, he would be, you know, he, he would be frustrated if he, if it was really stuck and he was making people be responsible for their posture and their stretches and he would give people things to do and they had to do them. And he just was a clinician. He made it, um, he made it about the patient. He made it about the dysfunction. He made it about their pain. He didn't make it about himself. 
and, and, and he made it all make sense. And, and he, I'll never forget that it was Friday afternoon and we go into this little closet, room closet office that he had in, in the clinical center. And he sat me down and he says, so um, it was a fun week. Would it, is there any questions that you have? Do you want to, do you have any questions? What do you, what do you think? And I started bawling. I started crying. <laughs> I started crying. And the look on his face was like, oh my gosh, what, what, you know, I don't, what, this, this, she, is she crazy? Why is she crying? And I was crying because it was just the most beautiful thing I'd ever seen. It, he, he made it make sense. Where I had been so frustrated for two years working with, with Bob Ward because I just couldn't, I had gotten into this discipline. I didn't, but I just, it, I didn't want to, it wasn't making sense to me. And Phil in one week made it made sense to me. And so, um, what was it I told that, him that, that he did, it, that it, it made sense to you? When he, when you're treating an FRS, right. He'd say, well, it's an FRS, right. And he'd treat it like an FRS, right. And hmm. I'm like, there's no magic. There's no like jiggle <laughs> and wiggle and, and, hold your breath and pant and do all the things that Bob Ward would do. I mean, it was just, it's just an FRS. Yeah. It's really important that we get that FRS left treated before we can treat the sacrum because it'll hold the, you know, you can't treat the sacrum. You can't take the sacrum into right rotation. If the sake, if L5 is rotated left, you know, and he Mm -hmm. would just explain Mm -hmm. that to me. He was like, Oh, that makes perfect sense. And he said, you know, he'd say, well, the SI joint is going to really inhibit the gluteus maximus. I said, oh, that's muscle imbalance. And he said, yeah, it's like this neural reflex. And that's why we have to treat the SI joint. And then we're going to send the patient home with some of these exercises. But it's probably not going to help the patient to do butt, you know, or gluteus strengthening in light of an SI joint dysfunction. And he just made it all make sense. I mean, it's just, uh, then uh, he'd say these little, little snippets of things. So it's like you and were having all these sense. eureka moments, things that you had Absolutely. studied that you didn't quite understand. All of a sudden, yeah. the light bulb went off. And Exactly. Like, why are we putting the body into this strange contortion in order to treat the sacrum using muscle energy? Well, he just basically made it make so it's just simple. The sacrum's rotated left. We want to rotate it right. It's relative L5. So we need to do this with the lumbar spine and, and 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 you this automatically takes the sacrum into this position and we're going to use this muscle it's muscle energy so just like an ers right we're going to frs at left well the sacrum is the same same thing and I'm like oh my gosh you gotta be kidding me so I just by the end of the week i just wanted to express to him how, how much i appreciated it and it came out me crying <laughs> <laughs> And from that point on, I mean, literally, you couldn't, Phil didn't say much where Lisa wasn't right there listening and taking notes. I mean, I, I followed him everywhere. I went to everything. I asked him every question. I videotaped. I've got so much videotape of Phil Greenman. It's crazy. Um, yeah. I, 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 now that you talk about him like, like that, I can see his teaching method in you, but also in the, the pedagogy of the residency at Michigan State. Yeah, I definitely was frustrated. 
and you know and, and the way we teach OMT in the classroom is just we really don't put it together for students and and I like like myself I wasn't ready to hear it anyway because I had four other courses I had to worry about passing so sure sure any other stories about um, Ed Styles or your other mentors that you wanted to share oh there's so many stories but they're they're not as funny as <laughs> with Phil. I'll never forget Phil was a, when I Phil would um, have me treat him you know the first time I ever treat Phil Greenman it was a great honor I mean to Phil you know he'd say hey Lisa I need you to treat my you know my sacrum my, you know I'm struggling here could you treat this and uh, so when you treat a Phil Greenman get ready because he stripped right down to his whitey tidies <laughs> every time yeah, no, oh you know, boy. Oh boy. So I remember the, it was kind of unconscious. He couldn't, you can never get away with that today, right? As a, Absolutely as, a not. as a faculty member, you know, going into a room and stripping down and saying, okay, now treatment. It's like, uh, you know. Right. Yeah. That would never happen. There's my safe space. <laughs> <laughs> right. Right. So. I'm sorry, you were going to say something. It was a lot of fun. It was sure. a lot of fun, you know. Yeah, it sounds like it. It sounds like he was extremely influential in your, one, your understanding of OMT, two, about, like you were saying, making the the specialty not about you, but about sharing this with your patients and sharing it with the medical community. And you've done that through the Greenman's principle of manual medicine. And I believe the sixth edition will be coming out in the near future. The sixth edition, we are just getting contracted on the sixth edition. So it will be out in two years. In two years. Yeah. So we can expect that. But um, yeah, his, his philosophy, it seems like it's permeated in your persona. I guess Phil kind of seems to live on through you in a certain sense. <laughs> well, that's uh, quite a compliment because that's, <clears throat> I think he would, he would appreciate hearing that, but I definitely, um, I love the way that he taught. I definitely love the way that he taught. He made it, he made it make sense. And he loved patient care. He adored patient care, um, especially cranial work. Um, he was very versatile in the way he would treat people. He would do high velocity, he would do muscle energy, do myofascial. He would do exercise prescription. He would do cranial. It was, it was, and he had mentors too. I mean, we, we really don't think about, I mean, Paul Kimberly was a huge mentor of his, as was John Minnell, right? Joint play, John Minnell, John Bordillon, some of the medical uh, manipulators from Europe were, um, really close colleagues to him. He learned from a lot of people. And the other thing I respected about Phil is that he learned from PTs, right? He learned from Mark Bookout. Um, Mark Bookout was very influential on Phil. He was a PT that really coined the whole exercise prescription course that was taught at Michigan State University, is taught pretty much and respected nationally and internationally. And um, Mark is a dear friend of mine. Um, and um, I've asked Mark to actually co-author co Principles of Manual Medicine, the sixth edition. So I'm really excited about that because he's just brilliant. 
brilliant, brilliant, mm-hmm. brilliant. Yeah. And you briefly touched on um, the osteopathic um, principles of practice course in medical school. What, what is it about Phil Greenman's philosophy of teaching? Do you think we need more of in our teaching of, of these hundreds of thousands of osteopathic medical students that are graduating, maybe not hundreds of thousands, but thousands of medical students that are graduating from osteopathic medical school. What is it that we're lacking? Because you know, not many seem to be interested or seem to want to practice OMT in the future. Well, what we're missing is that a lot of the instructors in osteopathic medical schools are not seeing patients. You know, they're not they're not clinical practice. So they they're really just taking what they learned in residency and they're they're um, teaching it. Uh, we have a basic construct in, in, in osteopathic medical schools that's pretty much based on a lot of dogma. Um, and, and the techniques are just overwhelming. We don't, you know, why do we need so many techniques? It's in, in, we really don't have, in first and second year medical school, we really don't have a clinical concept of what we're doing with OMT. Um, it's all philosophical, theoretical um, based uh, instruction. So what I would like to see is that we teach students in the first and second year a lot about the normal function of the musculoskeletal system and then build on that the indications for OMT and then give our students a little a technique or two to do but not like every technique in the book before their second year of medical school. So give them a little smattering of indirect technique and direct technique. Um, help them understand the role of localization um, or even, and even the indication for do, doing OMT. What is the indications? And that's all, that's all kind of in, intertwined with the normal functional musculoskeletal system. And, and the neural musculoskeletal system, right? The neurology involved and, and the, the implications so I think what we do is we say, well, the patient has low back pain, you're going to do all these techniques, but it doesn't help our patients under, or our students understand how they got the low back pain to begin with. Mm. Yeah, I think that's a great point. And I know Dr. Lippert has been trying to do that with the incoming first year medical students at Michigan State with that introduction to OMM course, going over a lot of anatomy and um, actually mentioned your lecture on was an introduction to biomechanics of the body. Yep. So, yeah. Yeah, yeah, and we we're fortunate because we're changing the curricula, so uh, the OMM department is going to have a lot more say in the musculoskeletal portion of the neuromusculoskeletal course. We're actually pairing. We're splitting off the musculoskeletal piece from the neurology piece. So, and then, so OMM is going to start teaching the musculoskeletal piece. And so some of the basic principles um, that I teach in the residency are going to be taught in that course, like supination, pronation, you know, loading and unloading. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, there's, there's a gait cycle, how the sacrum actually moves. <laughs> Why yeah. it moves the way it moves. Um, what's, what's arthrokinematic or arthrogenic inhibition? What does it mean? Um, 
So some of those basic topics that I think are all really valuable because that's what OMT does is it improves that reflex neurology. Yeah, you know, those are all topics that I would love to have had and I'm slowly learning about throughout residency. Um, I do want to ask you what, what advice do you have for those osteopathic medical students or maybe even physicians, osteopathic physicians who don't find value in OMT or maybe those students that are kind of dragging their feet to lab and have a lot of questions about OMT. What, what advice yeah. do you have for them? I would ask, you know, them to um, that's, a, that's, a, that's a big question. Um, that they read more and understand more about reflex neurology of the musculoskeletal system. That they don't put all of their um, distrust in OMT on the fact that there's not all this research. That the reality is, is that the musculoskeletal system is well researched. We just aren't putting it all together for them in terms of OMT has the impact of the joint and what the joint really has within it that can lead to a problem up and down the musculoskeletal system. So in other words, every joint has a synovial capsule, right? And within that synovial capsule, you have a ton of mechanoreceptors. And I, I would ask the student to think about, well, what are mechanoreceptors? And what's their role and where, you know, what do they do? And why are they important in, in movement? Um, in the normal musculoskeletal system. Uh, okay, so understand all that and then say to yourself, well, what if that joint isn't able to move? Like, um, then what happens to that, those mechanoreceptors? That's going to be a feedback loop that's broken. And so what are the implications or what could be the implications of that? A really good example is uh, in the knee, right? If you, there's, we all kind of know that if the knee is injured and you have edema, you have swelling of the knee, right? Even 20 cc's of normal saline put into a knee is going to be enough edema to stretch that capsule of the knee such that you're going to inhibit the quadricep muscles. So one of the long-term consequences of chronic knee effusion is loss of muscle tone in the quadriceps. Well, that's the, the reason why the loss of muscle happens is because of the effusion. And so mechanoreceptors are telling the muscles that they, to, to not fire because they don't, they can't see through that effusion. They can't basically hear or feel where that knee is in three-dimensional space so that the muscles, in particular the vastus medialis, which is the major stabilizer of the knee, is going to be very inhibited. So that kind of concept for the knee 
works for every joint of the body, including the spine. So it works for the SI joint. You know, all of it is basically all the neurophysiology um, and the scientific um, information that you need to know about OMT is housed within basic physiology of how muscles work and how joints work. Which is what you've loved ever since you were young and now you found it in OMT. Yeah. I, and, and I've expanded it to a a place where I'm just, you know, you can be as, as creative as if you creative as you want to, because nobody's talking about it. And are there any good sources that you could rattle off offhand that we could read or research into to learn more about this arthrokinematic reflex of these I mean, mechanisms? It's AMI. Um, they, I would, there's lots of studies um, on arthrogen, arthrogenic inhibition or arthrokinematic inhibition. Um, Archie Stokes back in the 60s is the first Archie and Maria Stokes um, were the first to really define it in the knee Um, and then there's other topics like um, if someone questions cranial right the CRI the cranial rhythmic impulse right everybody thinks wow it's woo woo it's voodoo and cranial has been more there's more research on cranial what you're feeling when you palpate the osseous cranium, the CRI, than any other OMT research, any, any other technique um, in terms of normal physiology. And that would be vasomotion, you know, read about vasomotion. Yeah. Um, and, or Traub, Herring, Meyer waves. Those are the things you're palpating. Um, yeah. Those are all truly been researched and in basic physiology. Yeah. And I'll, I'll look up some of these studies and I'll put them in the show notes so that if people are interested in these topics, they can at least have a few articles to read. Sure. Yeah. And I've, I've included, there's a lot of them in the residency, you know, articles, um, learning about muscle, muscle types, right. Um, local muscle versus or stabilizer muscles versus uh, big mover muscles. Like there's a big difference in uh, reflex neurology of like a multifidae or transversarii muscle around the spine um, compared to like quadratus lumborum or iliopsoas or the psoas muscle. So different types of muscle and how the muscle is going to behave different based on somatic dysfunction um, sure. because of that, that reflex loop that's been altered. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, I'm, I'm excited, you know, over my, this next year, my second year of residency to definitely go over some of these concepts that I didn't learn in medical school. I don't know if I was sleeping during class or if it just wasn't taught, but um, I still have a lot to learn in this area. So I appreciate you bringing those topics up. My last question, Dr. DiStefano, because we're a little over an hour, is you kind of, you talked about Phil Greenman and he's been an incredible pillar in the field of osteopathic medicine. And, you know, as we talked about lives on through you, what you're coming to the end of, of your career. I hope you're going to not retire for a number of years. 
But my question is, what what is the legacy that you want to leave behind? Um, or do you even want to leave any legacy behind um, as far as what do you want to be remembered for in the osteopathic community? Or is that even not even important to you? I, I would like the concepts that um, I've written about to be to to um, continue to flourish, like you know, um, um, uh, no, why? You know, there's so many aspects. There's so many things. I, you know, people tell me I have a lot to say. Um, I want what I say to be what other people are are saying. And I I would love for there to be like a national campaign on spine health um, so that we can um, diminish the amount of devastating um, pain that we have in the country. Um, I, I think one of the things that I want to pass on to all my residents and every student and everyone I talk to is I don't believe arthritis exists, should exist at all. I think the body is, is a self-stabilizing, tensile, um, highly performing organization that should not break down um, if it's treated well. And what, what does that mean um, as far as posture, as far as gait, as far as, far as strength? Um, I think... It's not about OMT for me because I, I don't believe that, you know, there's no technique that I would ever develop or even put my name on, right? It's really about the indications for using a technique, but it's really more about helping people find function. And if they find function, pain has got to go away. Um, so I think that's the legacy I want to leave is that I, I would like to see less chronic pain, less opioid use, less surgery, less sequelae of what, what I define as sagittal plane imbalance, right? When people just kind of don't use their body, don't hold their body up in three-dimensional space very well. Um, we can't cure that with OMT. As much as we want to, we cannot cure pain with OMT. All we can do is improve function but a lot of that comes from the patient as well. So there's a lot of education that has to come about when we're clinically speaking about our patients. But if we don't understand the normal function of the musculoskeletal system, it's very hard to communicate that to our patients. It's very hard to educate our patients. So I think that's the legacy I want to learn is, is or believe is, is broadly um, allowing clinicians to better understand the musculoskeletal system so that they can uh, more accurately treat their patients or before they send them for surgery and before they break all their joints down and <laughs> before they, you know, they need more and more. Yeah. And, and so when you, when you say that you don't think that osteoarthritis, which we commonly understand is or commonly say is a wear and tear disease, you're saying that if someone 
has good posture, has strong sta- muscle stabilizers, that that process will not happen or will be delayed. It shouldn't happen. Not even when they're 90 years old. Not even when they're 90 years old. It should not happen. That's really interesting. Our body is is meant to self-stabilize. And I understand why it doesn't. One of the wonderful articles I love is Panjabi's, you know, uh, discussions, a two-part series on stabilization of the spine, um, looking at active passive neural subsystems and how those subsystems are all, all integrated. And if, you know, all we need to do is not overload the system, right? Use our body wisely. And I'm not saying just do a lot of yoga, you know, or do more exercise. I'm talking about everyday people, mm-hmm. everyday people. Yeah. Well, Dr. Stefano, thank you so much for your time. We're going to have to have a round two sometime in the future. Um, I really appreciate you being yeah, so generous with your time. And is, are there any plugs or anything that you want to end with? Give us uh, an insight into the upcoming osteopathic convocation in March. Yeah, you know, it's great that we talked about all these principles because I'm going to touch on every one of them in one three-day conference. So um, get ready, four-day conference. So get ready. And I'm I'm lining up a bunch of speakers um, and some of these concepts are going to be discussed. And at the end of the conference, we're going to put them all together, put it all together in a clinical scenario, case scenarios um, for our, for the participants. The other thing that's really beautiful about this convocation is the students are, uh, um, are in lectures with the physicians, with the, with the docs. So um, I'm going to be able to speak to um, these principles with students in the audience, which is very exciting. So there will not be a separate student track for the not for the lectures lectures. they'll have um student workshops but not lectures yeah that'd be great okay well thanks so much dr stefano it was wonderful talking to you thank you for sharing your story and your passion for medicine and osteopathic medicine so you have a wonderful evening thank you my pleasure dr green okay bye now bye-bye What I most love about this podcast is that I get to listen to and record for the history books great osteopathic physicians like Dr. Lisa DiStefano. She has a wealth of knowledge about OMT and is always happy to teach and answer any questions you may have. If you would like to reach out to her, you can find her email in the show notes. I have also included a few articles about the arthrokinematic reflex for your reading. Take a look. Like us on Apple Podcasts or wherever you listen to podcasts and stay tuned for the next episode.